Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the pod, we have a very special guest, Senator Dianne Feinstein. So special that I actually am wearing a tie during the podcast, a first. Uh, We talk with the senator, we go about her life before she became a senator, her career in San Francisco politics, her childhood, um, when she had an abusive mother. Uh, We talk about when Harvey Milk was killed, the first gay supervisor in uh, San Francisco history, and how she found him and put her hand in the bullet wound where he was shot. We talk about uh, when she carried a gun uh, for a while as mayor of San Francisco, and then when she eventually gave that gun to the Pope. All this and more on It's All Political. Senator Feinstein, welcome to It's All Political. Thank that's, you. That's Thank the name of our podcast much. here. Yeah, and uh, and this is an all. It's all political first, as you commented earlier. Uh, this is the first. It's all political where I am wearing a tie. Well, I'm impressed, Joe. Actually, I like the tie. It looks like it's got little. Oh, I thought that was a rooster, but it isn't. No, it's, it's a, a design. It's a design. I bought this yes. in Spain, uh, actually. It, and uh, the blues match your jacket. Thank you. All right. All good. All right. Yes. All right. All right. We're all set. So I've, I've lived in California 26 years, which is about when you were first elected to the Senate. So there are probably many Californians like me who only know you from, from your time in Washington. So we wanted to spend a few minutes here looking, at your, looking back at your early life and career and what shaped you as a native San Franciscan into the person and political leader you are today. So we are here in the basement of the Chronicle, the Chronicle right. Archive. It's kind of, it's kind of wild yeah, down it's here. It's kind of a nice place, yeah, actually. Yeah. And there, there are literally hundreds of Diane Feinstein photos in here, and certainly many stories. We even have baby photos of you, which we'll show You're you. You're kidding? Second. Yes, huh. I know how those those came up here. So we picked out a few to, for you to look at, look at, and comment okay. on, and, and tell us a little bit how they shaped your earliest days. Now here's a photo of you, very early photo. Right about the time when you were first elected to the board of uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors, 1969. Wow. But what's the, what's interesting in the stories from that time is that your looks and clothing are often referred to. This is one of our first stories in the Chronicle. Was headlined a pretty expert on crime when your work on the about your work in the state criminal uh, uh, justice board, and it said, "quote San Francisco's Diane in parentheses Mrs. Burt." Feinstein, is a raven-haired, blue-eyed beauty who looks more like an actress, in parentheses, which she has been, than an expert on California criminal justice, which she is, in parentheses, end quote. Now, of course, that would be hack and reek of sexism if we said this today, but when you saw that back in the day, what was the context for that? Um... Were you, was that, did you think that was demeaning in any way? Uh, Well, I probably didn't even notice it in those days, um... I don't remember when this photo was taken. Uh, there's no. It lay a guard. Like 1970. 1970. Yeah. Well, um, I ran for the board of supervisors in 1969. Yes. So, and I became its president. So this would have been, if it was 1970, mm-hmm. uh, well, I was president of the board of supervisors. Yeah. 
But those comments about your looks and, 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 and clothing and their well, what did what did that say about the time? I, I think it said at the time that women were in transition. Um, I remember when Sandra Day O'Connor uh, said, you know, she tried to get a job in the mid-1950s and couldn't. And I had the same struggle that your, your looks um, sort of determined, I guess, how people looked at you. And if you were attractive, they looked at you one way. And if you um, had other characteristics, I guess they looked at you another way. But um, all that's changed for a woman today. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I remember when you either got married or you were an old maid. That's no longer hurt. You mm -hmm. don't say that. Women have the option. They can marry or not marry. They can become professional women. When this photo was taken, there were very few women who were professional women. Mm -hmm. And you, it was also, yesterday at the, at, in Silicon Valley, you told a story about when you were uh, appointed to the U.S., or I'm sorry, the San Francisco Police Commission, and they held a dinner at a private club. No, it was Al Joe Aliotto's uh, crime commission. Oh, crime it commission. was not the police commission. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. And, and tell the story. When you were invited to a meeting at a private club at that time, yes. that didn't allow women. Yes. And what happened? Well... I said, um, you know, they won't let me go in there. And, and the reaction was, oh, don't let that bother you. The meeting's not that important anyway. Oh, my God. Yes. So, so what happened? Did you yes, I didn't go. Oh no. My God. But I made a mental note of it. And obviously that mental note has stayed with me throughout the decades. That would not happen today. Um, I've had one other experience like that where I was more secure, and some of us were having lunch um, at a club, and they said, this is for men only, and you um, um, said, well, you can call the police then. They sat us and... <laughs> you said call the police and have yeah, me tossed out and, and gave us lunch, and it began a change uh, in that particular club. In San Francisco? Yes. Do you mind saying what club that was? Yeah, what's the club? Can we go off for a minute? No, no. <laughs> it's, it's on Van Ness. It's actually Concordia a Jewish. The Concordia Club it was the Concordia Club. Wow. So it was actually a Jewish club. Wow. And it was a ma male-only day. And I was with another supervisor. It was Dorothy von Berldingen that I was with. Isn't that interesting how it comes back to yeah, you? yeah. And I said, well, then call the police. And so Bill Coblenz, who was sitting there, longtime uh, San Francisco attorney, very politically and connected. came over and negotiated a lunch for us. And we sat there and we had lunch. And then they changed their policy. Wow. And this is about, uh, so early 70s, 70, 71? Yeah, I guess it was wow. early 70s. Oh, my gosh. Two sitting supervisors in San yes. Francisco were not seated at a club. So you, now, in Silicon Valley, of course, we say, you know, fail fast and stuff like that. You ran for mayor. Many people d don't know this. You ran for mayor twice. That's correct. And lost uh, before you won. And here's a couple of photos from a couple of your mayoral runs. Um, here's one uh, from your first one. I think that's in 1971 when you lost to Joe Aliotta, the sitting mayor. And another no, one is a, is a This is voting. Um, I wore this on election night, the Board of Supervisors, in 1969. Uh -huh. 
So well, I remember this was the best suit I ever okay. had. That's, so. that's okay. So that's that's a, you. It's a, your lucky suit you're wearing yeah. there. And uh, and then there's another view of a photo with Quinton Cop, whom, whom you actually defeated in '79 to win a full term. During your '75 race, your mayoral race in '75, when you expected to finish in the runoff, you decide not to spend all the money you had in the primary. And you got squeezed out that year yes. by Moscone on the left, George Moscone, the yes. eventual mayor, and uh, John Barbara Gelada on the right. What did you learn from that race, and, and what did you learn from losing races? Well, oh, what did I learn from the race? I have to, I have to think back. Uh, I, what I thought uh, was that I was not electable. Really? And that I was not electable as mayor. And so I went back and I resolved that um, the board had become district and I had always run citywide. And so I was running from district two and um, the assassinations took place. Mm -hmm. And I was president of the board of supervisors. I did three terms as president Mm -hmm. and but it you was you weren't electable at that point. Was that because so, of politically? Because or? I had run twice and yeah. was defeated, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty good sign that yeah. I wasn't electable. And I decided I was going to um, quit. Really? At the end, as a matter of fact, I went in. The examiner reporter was Russ Cohn, and I had just come back. I had met my husband, and we went on a little trip. Uh, to the Himalayas, and I had just come back, and I said, um, I want you to be the first one to know that I am not going to run again. Uh, This is it for me. And I went into my office and closed the door, and I was looking for Dan White because um, Mayor Moscone had told us that he was not going to reappoint Dan White to a seat to which he had just resigned. Mm-hmm. He was going to appoint Don Haranzi at 11 that morning. And um, the door opened where I was sitting. I could see the hall. And um, Dan White came in, walked by me. I heard the shots. I heard all the doors slam. Uh, I went down and find Har- found Harvey Milk's body. You went and over, you were the daughter of a, of a doctor, you were married to a doctor at the mm-hmm. time, so you instinctively kind of checked for his pulse, correct? I did. What did you find? A what bullet you hole. You put your hand in Well, the he had hole. put his hands up and uh, you got shot uh, through the wrist. So it was, um, and uh, then everything changed. You, and you were the first person that you sort of told the world what happened. Yes, and I became acting mayor. Mm-hmm. And then the whole story. Here's, I'm gonna, we'll jump ahead a little bit here. Okay. That's, those are some photos from this. This is, the, I believe, the next day. <laughs> um, and then this is... Uh, Charles this, Gain, who was is, chief of police. And this is uh, you sort of addressing the, the media after the next day and then sort of bowing your head at the next board of supervisors meeting um, for a moment of silence. For right. What, at this point, the, the, the city is still in shock. Well, this is, this is the hardest thing I have ever gone through. And um, the shock and the horror 
And the fact that this is a colleague of yours that has killed another colleague whom I was trying to reach on the phone because I thought he might try something to get his spot yes. back. Dan and White. He wasn't Dan White. White. He mm-hmm. was, in fact, trying to get his spot back. Mm-hmm. But that was not meant to be. And it was just, it was just horrible. How do you, how do you keep that today? Where does, how does that, how does that surface for you today? There's also a learning lesson. And that is that different people have different tolerances. So you have to look at people rather sensitively and understand how far you can push them. Dan White, uh, a former firefighter, former police officer, married to a teacher, all-American family, Mm -hmm. two very good-looking people. Um, The city was divided. The Chamber of Commerce was very conservative in those days. Um, Six votes controlled the board, and Dan was one of their votes. Mm -hmm. So when he decided we were paid 11,000 a year, Mm. when he decided he and his child and his wife and he had a little hot potato stand down at Pier 39. Uh, When he decided that he couldn't remain on the board, that he was going to resign, and then the mayor called him, uh, then the chamber called him and said, you can't resign. You're our sixth vote. You can't. So he tried to get it back. Mm. And um, he apparently overheard a conversation with his good friend, who was Harvey Milk. Dan and Harvey had coffee every Thursday um, down in the Castro. And he um, felt that Harvey betrayed him, I think, and was actually working against him with the mayor, not working for him. Mm. And so he had an appointment with the mayor and went in to see him, and the mayor was sitting in his back office in a chair that I couldn't sit in for five years. Mm. Um, And he shot and killed the mayor, and then crossed City Hall, came in right past me. I said, Dan, stop, and he went right by me, and I heard the shots. And you were one of the first people in there. This is, uh, you know, you have an incredible amount of personal or professional trauma here, but also, um, in your personal life, you've had uh, you've had a lot of uh, personal trauma, um, and I wanted to show you. This is a picture of you as a, as a little girl. I don't know how we found this as your baby pictures. <laughs> we've got everything in the Chronicle Archive here. That's but me. That's you. I can't deny it. Yeah. And there's also a picture of you that that I couldn't pull up of the grand you at the Grand National Rodeo. Oh yes. Rodeo champion. I was, yes. I was 16 then. Yes. And now, there's a lot of politicians, you know, Al Gore talking about his son's accident, Bill Clinton talking about the abuse, he, uh, his abusive father. There are parts of your life um, that are very traumatic, too. You almost enough for three lifetimes. Your father, as we said, was a very renowned surgeon. Your mother was those prone to fits of rage, and she was a bit of a drinker, as I remember, as I've read. You were a single mom. You had a very brief first marriage. It didn't work out. Your second husband, Bert uh, Feinstein, a man whose you said his marriage to him was a ten. Yes, you know, it's true. Uh, died of cancer while you were on the board of supervisors yes. shortly before all these yes. traumatic things that have happened. Yes. So these, they were not talking. These other politicians haven't been shy about talking about family trauma, how that shaped him. You, know, you sort of keep this in a separate place. How did these things 
shape you, these personal traumas? Well, the personal life became clearer when I understood what the problem was. Um, my mother uh, was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, and my grandfather, I think, was in the Tsar's army, and they left during the revolution, came here with uh, small children. Um, they had a little bit of gold, which they buried, and somebody dug it up, and so they were penniless. Mm. Uh, my mother had tuberculosis, was in a sanitarium for three years. She turned out to be a very beautiful woman, and she was a model uh, for Miss Mendesal, who ran Maison Mendesal's. It was in the St. Francis Hotel oh, wow. on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. It was a couture store. And my mother was her model and met my father, who was a medical student and um, very erudite. And they were married. And um, I was the first, um, first child. Um, what we learned is that my mother had had meningitis as a child. Mm. And so the brain did not develop sufficiently. Mm. That was found when they developed the CAT scan and they could look inside you and see my mother was missing the part of the brain that um, controlled judgment and reason. You couldn't reason with her. Mm. And so it was a very difficult childhood. Um, she was very beautiful, however, mm. and could put herself, uh, you know, she was a model. So she, and um, was a wonderful hostess for my dad, but um, the life beyond that was not a good life. Mm. And um, it took until that particular diagnostic machine was developed that we knew what it was. Mm. And she ended up in assisted living where... Um, it was very hard. It's just very, very hard because mm. she was difficult to control. Right. I can imagine it made you kind of grow up a little bit faster. I grew yeah. I was the oldest, yeah, so, so you, I have two younger yeah. sisters. So I grew up, yes, yeah. and, you know, you take responsibility. Be, be hyper-responsible type yes. of person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to, here's a, here, sort of a traumatic thing involving your own daughter. This is, do you remember this photo? This is after the... Um, you know, San Francisco, the 70s in San Francisco is a wow, very dangerous, yeah, <laughs> very dangerous. There's a lot of, a lot of die-fi different hairstyles in the, in the, in the things. Too. Is but that this me? Is, I, I'm <laughs> so the, okay. uh, the, uh, uh, the 70s were sort of, a, as we sort of alluded to, a very dangerous, unpredictable era. There's a zebra killings, abduction of Patty Hearst, SLA bombings, bombings yes. at the opera house. And here's there was a bomb planted in in and, front of your house. That's correct. And 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 by the New World Liberation Front, and your fourteen year old then fourteen year old daughter. It was uh, nineteen seventy six. I yeah. remember distinctly. And this is a photo from that. You uh, learned to shoot after to protect yourself. Correct. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Um, the bomb was placed in a flower box outside our home, and. Um, and my daughter walked out, and she saw this stuff up the side of the building with tagants, XBLO, XBLO. 
and for explosive. And the tagant was from a plastic explosive. Uh, the detonator went off at 1.30 in the morning. This particular explosive does not explode below freezing. And mm. it had dropped below freezing. Oh, imagine in San which Francisco. Never happens. <laughs> How much That's does that right. happen? Wow. So the police came. They found the detonator in the street, and obviously saw the tagants and the uh, the plas- plastic explosive. Uh-huh. Um, but it was pretty clear. And my husband was very sick with cancer, mm. Bert. Bert, yeah. And um, Al Nelder was chief of police and became supervisor and had the office next to mine. And I said, Al, um, you know, I'm very uncomfortable. Oh, then they went and shot the windows out of our beach house down at Pajaro Dunes. Oh, my God. And so Al said, I'm going to get you trained in firearms. So I went out to the police range and they trained me. And, um, and he, were you, he were was able, what could you shoot? it was a little two and a half inch snub nosed, um, uh, 38 caliber five-shot revolver. Mm-hmm. And I learned a big lesson about guns. I had it in a leather holster. I would go to the police range. I would fire. I would dry fire. Um, but what I learned was it's in my purse. And in the purse, it looks very Senator's much like it now. did today. Yeah. One pair of glasses, two, <laughs> a checkbook, a cosmetic clay. She's a emptying wallet, her purse, all the things. And in at the, purse. the bottom, so one day I'm walking to the hospital, which was Mount Zion, not far from where we were living, and said, I'm going to see if something happened, how fast I could yeah. find the weapon. Well, you can see what would have happened. Yeah. I would have been dead. And so I thought, this is really pretty useless. So it was my own learning. So what we did was um, this weapon, and when I was mayor, uh, the chief I appointed, Con Murphy, um, took my weapon and other weapons and had them melted down, and we made a cross. And when I went to Rome, I gave it to the Holy Father. And that was the end of the gun. Wow. And you've, have you not fired a, a weapon since? No. How does that inform, you're obviously on the, on the uh, forefront of a gun control movement in this country, how does that inform, you know, that experience inform where you're at now on this? Well, what it makes me realize is how difficult it really is to count on a weapon secreted to be effective in a, in a bad situation. And it reminds me of the president wanting teachers to carry guns. Yeah. So you have a holster or a female teacher has a weapon secreted in her purse in a holster mm-hmm. and someone walks into the classroom with a drawn AR-15. You don't have a chance. Right. You don't have the chance. I guess the vernacular word is they have the drop on you. Yes. And it just doesn't, you, you can't respond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't make very good sense to me. And I don't think teachers should be carrying weapons anyway. 
Okay. Let's uh, another photo that uh, many new Californians might know about is that uh, you ran for governor in 1990, and uh, and here's your your primary opponent, John Vandekamp. There's a couple of uh, oh. shots of you. Oh, I didn't run against John uh, Vandekamp. Well, no, no, I mean I ran for Senate in the primary. Against, yeah, in the primary in the against, against Vandekamp. Van yes, yes, yes. In the primary against Vandekamp. Um, um, and, and you know, it's also there's parallels to this year at the state convention. You weren't you. They endorsed Vandekamp very narrowly. I don't think I've ever had the endorsement. Most people don't because it's sixty percent. Yeah, yeah. So no one got an endorsement this time. Right. No one got an endorsement this time, uh, and you, you were booed that year by your fellow Democrats because you were supporting the death penalty that year. Uh, when you look back on that photo, what did that teach you, or what what did that what did that race tell you? Tell you? Well, it told me clearly I was not electable as governor, but, you know, I believed I was not electable as mayor, and uh, I'm not sure. You know, times change, Joe, and that's what's happened in America. And as times change, people change, Mm -hmm. hopefully for the good, not for the bad, but sometimes it's a mixed bag. And um, I think... I, I think, you know, I've always had a solid base of support mm-hmm. out in the state. It shows in polls. And I very much appreciate that. I'm grateful for it. It's very important to me. And this is, I've learned through all of this, through death, mm-hmm. through illness, that it's what I'm meant to do. So it, it sounds like I'm on some kind of messianic mission. That's not the case. <laughs> But you do figure out what you're meant to do. You know what you're meant to do, and I know what I'm meant to do. Mine depends on election. And um, so I've tried to serve people. Um, One, of course, another seminal moment for you. You're a groundbreaker in many ways, but um, here's a picture of you and Walter Mondale. Oh, yes. The former vice president. Right. We, We always talk about the 1992 being the year of the woman. Uh, but you kind of set the groundwork for that in 84 when you're one of the finalists to be nominated as vice president with uh, Mondale. The choice came down between you and Geraldine Ferraro. They say the brunette or the blonde. That's how it was called. <laughs> and uh, and Mondale wanted to make sure, you know, he certainly had, you know, he was considering a woman. Now, what did that, you know, obviously it's a huge honor to be to be a finalist, but what, when you didn't get it, what did that, what did that change you or what did that no it didn't it change? change me it didn't no not at all uh-huh. uh we went to his home uh-huh. and i remember there were a lot of mosquitoes all around me and one it is minnesota I was doing a summer. press conference yeah. and one was on my nose and i kept trying to move this mosquito off um now wait i heard a story i read I read a story somewhere where there were mosquitoes attacking your legs yes during the press conference yes you uh did not did not flinch too much, and then afterwards, your legs were like bloody. Well, they bit me, yeah. but it was the nose. When they the... came around to the nose, that I had to <laughs> shoo him off. So, when you what when you're looking back at that picture, what what do you what first comes to mind? Well, what first comes to mind is what a fine man Mondale is. Mm-hmm. He's really a wonderful man. I got to know him, got to know him as vice president, and. Um, uh, you, you, you know, he's, he's, he's just a wonderful human being and a great public servant. And are you kind of happy you weren't on that ticket, though? 
since they since he lost um, forty nine states. I've never thought about it. Really? Yeah, really. Uh-huh. No, I've never thought about it. Uh, I was mayor during this convention, right? And what interested me and where I spent my time was I was worried about the convention. Yeah, because it was San Francisco. Yes. Could, who knows what could yes. happen. Yes, and yeah. so we had to do some things to see that there was safety and right. drills and lights, and uh, it became a very complicated process. Plus, we had to raise a lot of money uh, to put in the luxury boxes in Moscone Center. Right, right. So it was a very busy time just yeah. to get ready for the convention. Um, here's a picture of, of a guy you know. Is your your husband Dick Baum? Yes. Yes. Now that's uh, we. By the way, we have a lot of photos of. of There's of Dick. Charlotte. Oh, yeah. there you go, Charlotte uh, Schultz. Uh, um, so now we know him as a financier, a philanthropist. But then he was a, a financier with a shaggy, hip shaggy, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, seventies yeah. haircut. He's like yeah. he's like a big hipster in all these yeah. photos we have going on. So. Um, now, he came into your life, as you alluded to earlier, right after the Jonestown massacre, right, right, right around that time, I guess, in the, in the assassinations and Bert's death. Um, and this is a photo of you guys. How did, how did Dick shape your politics? What has his, like, his, been in his influence? Uh, under, um, he's a world traveler. You traveled to Nepal with him. Yes. Um, he was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. I had, after Bert's death, I had a lot of... Um, yeah, I had financial issues. I never paid any attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was able to help me work them out, which mm-hmm. I thought was good. When um, uh, my husband was so sick, we went to a lawyer, and he put us in an oil and gas scheme. Oh, no. And we lost everything. Oh, my God. So, and he never should have done that. But oh. I was under the—it was one of those great— learning situations where uh, you're traumatized you know you know the person you love is dying and um, um, you don't pay much attention to your financial affairs and all of a sudden um, you got a big problem so Dick was very helpful in working because he knew they shouldn't have put me in mm-hmm. that kind of an investment in the situation I was in. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he worked it out. So he worked. And then but how did he shape your, your politics? He's, a, you know, he's been in on a lot of political decisions with you and such. What, is there any way that he has, you know, does he help you think in different ways? You know, like what well, you... You uh, put together uh, Jerry Brown, the governor, and Ann Gust, and those two are right. sort of a political team. Is there is there a similar parallel with you guys, or not well, not that intense? There is. My my husband is very much into poverty, world poverty, and mm-hmm. helping. And he's written a book called Accident of Geography that you know where you're born sort of determines what mm-hmm. your opportunities are and what's happening on uh, the world. Um, uh, with respect to this, and so he has started something in. He's now in ten UC campuses called the Blum Center, mm-hmm. where they take young people that are interested. It's a minor. They take young people that are interested in working in poverty-struck countries and train them and send them over, 
And these young people, they've invented phones, they've invented all kinds of interesting things to help in poor, com- in poor countries. And so he's, he's done that. And um, he also runs his own foundation, the American Himalayan Foundation, which uh, right now the, the major thing is girl trafficking. Mm-hmm. And they have saved um, around 20,000 young girls in Nepal from being trafficked. Wow. And the way they do that is by putting them through school. And they average in the 96th percentile wow. in Nepal. And he sort of opened your this eyes to that his, issue of human trafficking. This is his program. That's right. Okay. Um, a couple more I want to get you, get you here on. Uh, speaking of uh, traveling overseas, when after you became mayor, after you elected mayor, you um, you traveled all over the world. I think it was something like, uh, what was I read? Uh, you traveled 163,000 miles on foreign trips to promote the city. Uh, you I paid for it with your campaign, with your campaign funds, your personal funds, not the city's. And you helped to bring a lot of investment here. Here's you on the uh, Great Wall of China. Oh, my. And then here's, huh. here's you. I'm not quite sure what this is because sometimes our records are not great here. But it's, do, you, do you recognize this? This is you wearing sort of a, a crown and, a, and a, it looks to be sort of a regal emperor's well, suit. Well, I can tell you one thing. This is the mayor's office because mm-hmm. I, I recognize the painting behind, behind me. And this is, um, oh, this is consul of the consul general, Hu Dingyi, consul okay. general of China wow. here, um, who became a good friend of ours. And um, then he went up in the government and became uh, a very prominent government official. And this is a replica of the emperor's robe. So you were wearing the emperor's robe here. I guess I must say you're, you're, uh, there's many pictures of you um, uh, well, we'll get that in a minute. Hu Dingyi was here. It was the 10th anniversary of the People's Republic of China and a big celebration. And um, he was, he went up in the government. He's passed away. I forget what he was, but he was a good friend of ours. Well, why was it important for you to, to, to log all those miles? I mean, San Francisco had a, had a terrible reputation at that point. Oh, like it was a well, dangerous I'll place. tell you what well, yeah. we did. We started the first American relationship with China, um, with Shanghai. Uh, we had 50 ongoing projects. Uh, we had business school projects where they would send students over, and we had people who would pay for them here to, to work in American companies to learn American management. Um, our director of public health... Um, our director of public works went over to Shanghai, uh, did a preliminary plan for a sewage treatment plant for the big river there, and they selected his plan to mm-hmm. carry out. Uh, so we had 50 different projects. We had a friendship library going on both sides. Uh, one was up at USF, one was in uh, Shanghai, and the man who became mayor of Shanghai subsequently became president of China, um, Jiang Zemin. And he and I were very good friends. And for many, I saw him every other year, which was um, 
which was terrific. And this isn't a, a relationship. President of the country he was head of the military and head of the the government um, for a substantial period of time. So He's one, still alive. One one more, and um, you know, a lot of politicians. You know, the the rule of politics is don't wear don't wear a hat, don't wear a silly hat because you know you can always. People can, you know, make fun of you yeah. and goof on you later. Um, uh, but back in the back in the day, you were you were shameless about. It. You would try all all kinds of outfits, and you would, I, there's all well, kinds of photos you doing there stuff. Were some, not everything. Not everything. But you were there was. Um, oh, but I the, know where you're going. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. You made a bet. Yeah, I made as, a bet. Well, why would you make this bet? This bet you because bet that. Wait, wait. Let's let's say what the spell what the bet is, uh, is that you bet that Pier Thirty Nine. Wouldn't be finished. Would be. Would be finished on time. I bet the developer, whose name was Warren Simmons, okay, that he would never finish Pier Thirty Nine on time. It was important because something I forget what was coming up, but the city really wanted it done. Yes, and um, so we made that bet. And he wait, said, "Wait, what was the bet?" The Spell bet it. was that if he did it, I would appear in a bikini. <laughs> so I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And the time what, came. What you, she's reaching for the photo. She wants the to time go. came, <laughs> and my husband had an old Sutro Baz um, bathing what, suit, <laughs> and we sewed up its wool. Yes. So we sewed up the moth holes, and um, I wore it. Yes, that was the, so with what, leotards when, on. Yes, so with I leotards, was covered. You were very. It was very, uh, very proper. When you, when you. Realized that you were going to lose a bet where you'd have to, where the mayor would have to wear a bikini. I was young then, you know, life was different. (laughs) All right, Senator, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome for for being on. It's all political. It's really. uh, I I don't know whether to be embarrassed or quite what by all of this. (laughs) Well, thanks for thanks for looking at these and and uh, and playing along. We appreciate you. Well, thank you, thank you. It's nice to know you too. So thank you. Well, I'd like to say uh, several thank yous on today's podcast. First, thank you to Senator Feinstein for coming in and uh, and playing along with our with our trip uh, through the archives. I'd like to thank Fernanda Diaz, who is our Chronicle Managing Editor for Digital, for producing today's podcast. I'd like to thank Peter Hartlaub, who is our pop culture critic and host of the Big Event Podcast, for the idea to do this. I mean, he does it so well, and I hope I can come close to how, he, how well he does this uh, uh, look in the archives. And I'd also like to thank Chronicle librarian Bill Van Niekirken for helping me out and getting all the Die Fi photos. Uh, thank you to Bill. Thank you to everyone. And remember, Senator Feinstein knows that no matter what, it's all political.